Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we heard Helen Margetz of the Oxford Internet Institute talking about how the use of big data is influencing our political systems. This week, we talked to a Microsoft engineer who is at the forefront of research on social interaction and artificial intelligence. I think that probably in the next couple years, almost everything you type or say will start to have more intelligence. That was Lily Cheng, who manages Microsoft's Fuse Labs division. Richard Waters spoke with her at the Tech Group's offices near Seattle about the evolution and challenges of chatbot technology. So, Lily, it seems now that we're encountering bots everywhere we go. And I was very struck by a statistic I saw the other day that some research from the University of Southern California that suggested that something like 15% of all the, uh, the people, in inverted commas, the people you meet on Twitter aren't people at all. They're actually bots, which is you know, tens of millions. And so it looks like people are encountering and talking to machine intelligence. Well, maybe they're intelligent, maybe they're not. I don't know. But what, what are these things? And, and are there really that many around? I think that's a really fascinating thing for us to think about what is a bot and what is a person and kind of what are all the variations in between. So bots have actually been around for a very, very long time, all the way back to IRC. And so IRC. Internet Internet. Chat Relay, which people who, you know, were on the internet 20 years ago used to communicate with other people. And the word bot actually comes from there. It's, you know, think of it basically as software that lets you have dialogue, um, either through text or voice, with an app. And so the question about Twitter and the audience, I think there's so many ways where, you know, you talk to a marketing site, that's probably a bot, automated in some sense, but it might be human powered. Often famous people actually have other people puppeting their accounts. So is that a human bot or not? And then there are, you know, bots that are obviously malicious or trying to trick people and, you know, do more evil things. But I, I think Probably every day we interact with services and our communication tools that are either augmenting what people do today or fully automated. We know that a lot of the things on Twitter are bad bots. They're spam, they're things to you know, push particular agendas or even drown out conversation that, uh, you know, they just kind of flood the comments and so on. When you look at Twitter, you know, or some of these channels, how much kind of useful communication is there going on right now? How many companies are communicating with their customers and how many news organizations are pushing out material? I mean, is there is there really a kind of active ecosystem of this stuff happening even now? Well, I would assume that almost every company today thinks about social media because people tend to live in chat apps or messaging apps. And so if you don't think about social media, you're really missing, you know, where much of your audience lives every day. And I think they're probably effective to different degrees. And one thing that's really nice about a social network is you, the user, tend to decide what you listen to. It's really a pull operation versus a push operation. So you broadcast something out and people who feel like listening to you will decide to pull in. And so, in a sense, you know, you only get in Twitter or Facebook the content that you want to see. Of course, now people are starting in 
to add in advertising and things like that into the feed, which you don't have as much control over. But traditionally, I think you were really in control of what you followed. And that's why I think people often are really oblivious to different segments that are in their social network that have really different views or maybe, you know, doing really wonderful things or really things that they would really disapprove of. I mean, to the extent that these things are automated, they're creating these interchanges with services and software over networks that look pretty much like in very simple form, but pretty much like what you might do on an app on a smartphone rather than open an app, tap a couple of things, get what you want. Now there's this different interaction method. So should we think about bots as the apps of the future? Is this how we're going to interact with many new things and we won't be tapping apps, we'll just be uh, having some conversation with a disembodied intelligence? (laughs) Well, I think that probably in the next couple years, almost everything you type or say will start to have more intelligence. So a really simple thing, I'm texting you and I say I want to go, do you want to meet? Well, maybe my meeting and my calendar will be surfaced in that app in a really lightweight way. And it could be, you know, another bot is saying, hey, privately to me, do you want to meet? Do you want me to schedule this? Or it may just be the app itself surfaces a little UI that says, click here to launch your calendar from either person. You know, that's just a really convenient, simple thing that means you don't have to go open your calendar, go somewhere else, find the date, copy and paste. I mean, our experiences through communication could be so much easier and more simple than they are today. And you're already seeing starts of this. And I think in a couple of years, people will just assume that the things that they converse with are able to surface things that are more personal and meaningful. Probably one of the best examples today is just your keyboard, right? As you start typing, it starts to surface words that you say often. So you're, you can spend less time typing or talking. All right, so it's more of a kind of augmented intelligence than a, an opposing personality that you're kind of engaging. Or I think you might have all of the above, yeah. but I think that they're a continuum, and it probably you want the experience that's going to be right for the experience that people are in. Right, right. Well, let's, let's back out a little bit here and talk about how you got to this point, because you don't have the typical career path of a, of a Microsoft engineer or in fact any engineer um, <laughs> but it but it all seems to add up to the kinds of you know things you're working on now so I mean tell me a little bit more about it you started off as an architect and this is you know physical objects not digital objects so what drew you to that and what, what did you learn about people's relationship to to objects when uh, when you were doing that I mean when I went to college I was really interested in math and design and I thought architecture was kind of this perfect union and I You know, I worked in Tokyo for a while, and I worked in Los Angeles. I had an amazing job. I got to design these big urban design projects. But I think I always felt like what you were seeing in technology was just moving a lot faster. And that was sort of the public space that we were designing for, just happening in a very different way. That was the part of architecture that I really loved, designing the city, you know, the big high-rises with these big places where people would... So it was about how people related to each other in in these spaces. Yeah, so I went to Cornell, and probably it's the best college for really studying urban design and how architecture fits into building a city. That really shaped the way I think about a lot of things. And so as an architect, you know if your project succeeds, if you go visit it and people actually hang out and are in the place 
that you designed. And not all of them work. Sometimes you go to a big public space and it's empty and you feel like, wow, I really, I really messed up, but it's really hard to fix because it's a giant building. And the great thing about thinking about public space and software is, well, just like in the physical world, you can't always predict what works and what doesn't work. And people you know, walk across the lawn and make a path that isn't maybe where you were planning on them walking, and then you have to, like, pave it. So software and the ability and our just, just how much people spend time online socializing, interacting with each other, I don't think we ever would have dreamed how much time people would spend in their phones and on their PCs, on the web. And so I think we owe it to people to make the spaces and the communication tools that we give them or that we design for people to model the way people think and communicate. Let's fast forward then to these bots and this kind of conversational new kind of way of interacting with computing because it's been all the, you know, the buzz for the last year or so in the tech world. Just mm. on that, yeah. my very first project that I worked on at Microsoft was this project called Comic Chat. And Comic Chat was a graphical interface on top of IRC Chat. And basically, as you talked, it would sort of automatically construct a comic book of your conversation. And so in a sense, I just laugh because I feel like a lot of this work around bots, it kind of is back to the future, right? Because that was the beginning of the internet also. And people were, of course, the internet meant that you were talking to other people and looking at other people's things. So why is it happening now? Why is it getting out of the research labs and the IRC fans and getting out to the rest of us? Yeah, why now is one of the most interesting questions, I think, having been doing this for a while. So first, I think, you know, obviously the technology is just unbelievable. There's a guy that I work with all the time. I see him probably every day. His name's XD, who runs a speech group. And they just met human parity with speech translation. They've been able to do that because they're innovating in the hardware stack and the software stack. And they just beat their own world record that they met three months before. And I'm sure, you know, somebody else will top that. It's a constantly moving target. But five years ago, we wouldn't have thought that was possible. And these people have been working on speech for a really long time, which is exciting because the technology kind of feels like it's there. And it's there enough that not just the AI experts can use it, but people are really democratizing the tools and making them available and sharing so people with real problems or fun things that they want to do can reuse these tools without having to have that expertise and can do interesting things. So the technology is, the data has definitely reached a turning point, I think. But probably more important, I think, is just people are ready. So I think people have been hearing about AI for a long time through science fiction and and they want it. And the first thing when you think about AI, you're like, well, that sounds really hard. I don't, I don't know. What does it do? And so people think, well, I should be able to converse with something. People want their experiences to be more human because they spend so much time in them. And they want to be able to use language. They want their systems to be able yeah, to use language. Yeah. And bots can be designed around the technology's limitations because there, there are still limitations. And you know, we all know our frustrations with trying to use digital assistants that seem to promise everything and yet get hung up on what we humans think are very simple questions. But bots you can design around particular interactions and they're conversational, so they kind of draw information out of you, right? So is that part of it? Yeah, I think what else is nice about bots is they can combine a lot of the tools that we already have. So if you have a screen, you should use it, 
when it's appropriate. So you can guide an experience or you can, you know, give people more explicit choices so they know what to do. And that really isn't any different than any other software that you design. Like you don't just give people a blank web page without anything on it. You you design it. And so you're designing a flow or a conversation. Probably what's different is just like if I were to say to you, backpack, or you said that to me, I, it's hard for me to think in conversation of two pages back or two concepts back. It's just your brain hurts when you think like that. Whereas if you're thinking of the web, back is really easy. Single user, back, back. <laughs> I see two pages of what I saw before. And so I think with conversation, it's kind of a different UI metaphor. You're always moving forward. And if you were to say back, actually, you would probably say, what? Or can you repeat that? And I would have to understand, what do you mean? Either you just didn't hear, in which case I might repeat it, or oh, I need to reframe it because I wasn't being very clear about what I was saying, you know, or something else. And so even these simple navigation metaphors that I think we have with the web or our PCs will be changed slightly because they're part of a conversation. For us, it's really fun because it's really fun to be able to think about some of these primitives and basics and really strip away the user interface almost to the most simplest thing. You mean, you're almost simplifying it all the way back to like a command prompt, you know, language. And then how might we build it back up with understanding and, and different primitives for how you converse? Yes. I mean, the, the, the language, the natural language is one of the most interesting things about this, that we're starting to move away from the specific context language where you issue a command as though you're at a keyboard and start to speak more normally. How do people react to this? You know, they're, they're using the language they would talk about, you know, as, as we're talking, and they're starting to use that with machines. And how, how have you discovered people want to use language for this kind of interaction? Well, one thing I think is interesting, and maybe this is, this is probably different with different cultures, but people like to test things, especially if you're a builder. You always test things, and you're poking. Like, where does it break down? which I don't think kids do that, actually. I think if you look at kids, they're not trying to reverse engineer where things break down. They just tend to use it. And probably older people also actually, especially with voice, just tend to use things more than maybe people who grew up on text and are just learning voice. It's it's really interesting to see how these things sort of have been yeah, unfolding. Yeah, play around with them. I mean, you know, when you talk about people testing things, of course, you had the experience last year with Tay at Microsoft of a bot that, you know, you released and then people tried to break it. I mean, you know, on Twitter and they succeeded to some degree and so you had to take it down again. What, what did you learn from that experience? I mean, as much about the people and how people want to interact as the technology itself, what did it teach you about, about people? Yeah, I think in a sense, the things that probably didn't work were much less about the technology and was much more social. So for example, we designed Tay, well, we had built a bot named Xiao Ice which was very, very successful in China. And then we launched Show Ice in Japan, also very, very successful. And the Japanese version called Reno was actually on Twitter. But the Japanese-speaking audience on Twitter is much smaller than the English-speaking audience. And in fact, like a lot of the use on Twitter for Reno was, was kind of low. It wasn't very exciting. And so we had really designed Tay just like Show Ice and Reno and now Zhou, which we just launched to work one-on-one and in small groups. And I think we just underestimated how different it would be to release something in a very public space. There seem to be cultural differences here as well in terms of how 
people wanted to interact with Shao Ice in China against how people react, you know. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Interacted with Tay in the U.S. Was that just a different demographic, a different culture? What was that? At first I thought, well, gosh, you know, in China, well, China's so specific. You don't really have people who behave like they do in Twitter in China behaving in public. Like it's kind of not really allowed by the government in a sense. But I don't really know that that was all there was. I mean, I think even when you think about science fiction in Asia, you have like Totoro, you have sort of spirits and friendly ghosts. And, you know, in the U.S. you have, you know, Blade Runner and, you know, the Terminator. And people, I think, have a different relationship with artificial intelligence than they might have in other cultures. So we don't really know exactly why. Uh, maybe it was just timing. It was sort of the beginning of, you know, sort of the whole Trump thing, and people were sort of joking around at the time. I think it was interesting because I think my biggest worry was that it wouldn't really, people wouldn't notice or it would not get attention. That's often what you think about when you launch these things. So we, we were wrong there. But, um, yeah, we definitely learned a lot. Yeah. So as you say, you've, you've got a new chatbot in, called Zoe which came out late last year and now is on Facebook Messenger and where it started. So what have you done differently and how are people responding to it compared with Tay? Well, people are responding to Zoe a lot like the intended audience was using Tay in the beginning, which was one-on-one and in small groups. So what we're finding, I mean, we're really, really excited about the use of Zoe. I think we have about, you know, 100,000 people using it. And we've rolled it out more slowly in a sense so that we would have more data um, that she could learn from to have smarter conversation. Usually your bot, the first day you release it, it doesn't have very much data. So it's probably the time when, you know, it might be the least interesting. So we were able to roll it out a little bit more quietly and um, it's it's been great. One of the ways that we measure whether a chat bot is engaging is just how many back and forths people have with it. So if you have like, you say one thing and then you leave, it's probably not that interesting. But on average, people are having, you know, 20 some back and forths, which is, which is probably more than you have even with, you know, many people. So we're really excited by that. And on all of these, we've really focused a lot on this notion of chit chat, which is a really cool thing. So a lot of our conversation might be just getting to a fact, but probably way more of our conversation is just is just talking. We're conversing. And so we've invested a lot in thinking about how to support kind of more general chit-chat in all of these Japanese, Chinese, and English, and just looking at how it affects how engaging it is. And obviously this is probably harder for some people to build. I mean, the research groups are involved with this and it's really interesting to see what makes conversation interesting and engaging. Harry Shum runs the AI division and he was showing me some of the transcripts that he had with both Shawais and with Zhou. And I was kind of laughing because he said, you know, it's really smart. And I said, it looks like she kind of, she kind of blew you off actually. Cause she was like, okay, I've had enough and left. But it's interesting. Hang on, the bot does that. 
Well, the bot did that for some conversation that he was having. I don't, you know, it doesn't do that yeah. all the time. Maybe he was testing it and she was like, okay, whatever. But I, I do think that there's things that we haven't really touched on yet that are much more human. So a person isn't always there when you want them to be. A chatbot is actually kind of more available because if you want to talk to someone in the middle of the night, they can be there. But then maybe if they're always there endlessly, it's also less interesting. So I think we just have a lot to learn about emotion. We even have a lot to learn just human to human. So think of emojis. We know that if you don't have emojis in chat, the usage is much lower. And I just think it's because we're not seeing each other face to face. We're communicating through text. Sometimes we talk over each other and people want to show that they're just joking around. They're being silly. They're being funny. I'm not serious. People seem very willing to engage emotionally with bots. And in, in the field of robotics, you know, we're all familiar with the uncanny valley where the more real a robot gets, the kind of weirder it gets and the creepier it gets. It seems with bots to be the opposite in a way that people are, you know, with a disembodied voice, people seem very, very willing to impute some kind of humanity to it or personality. What have you seen in that regard? I mean, with, you know, are people talking to these things as though they're humans, as though they're spirits, as you say? Voice is so fascinating. I just love it. It kind of ups the game in your emotional reaction because there's so much more fidelity and there's so much more character and personality that you associate with voice. And it's probably less understood than other mediums. You know, we just need to do more research and test it more. I mean, one thing that's probably hard to think about is voice tends to have a gender associated with it. And a lot of these bots are women. And is that, you know, what does that mean for us, right? I mean, we didn't, hopefully not every bot has to be a woman, but then how do you design voice so maybe it's more neutral or let I was, people pick? Yes, I was going to ask you about that. Is it because at the moment the bots are all cast as assistants? They're there to help us complete a task. And so digital assistants become like personal assistants. It, we think of them as women because females kind of fill those roles in, in the workplace in many companies. Is, is that the problem? And as they perform other types of functions, will, will, will they just have a wider range of personalities and roles? Yeah, I think probably for in the beginning, most of these character of the voice probably is a, a certain age range and a certain gender. And I just think we can push it more. And we need to think of some voice technologies that just let us experiment a lot more quickly. So can you alter the voice so it sounds older or sounds younger or is a different gender, has an accent, speaks like this? Because, because otherwise I think we're just going to reinforce the stereotypes that we have in our society and it's just going to be less interesting to, to huge populations. I mean, what, what you can't get away from here is that this is a form of social engineering, like it or not. Either you reinforce existing social stereotypes or you experiment with other types, and social networks do that all the time. But this is a fairly overt thing you're engaged in. So how do you, how do you think about that, you know, the extent to which you engineer social interactions and the way people relate to each other and to, and to computers? I guess everything you design has some bias in it. A website has some bias because you decide what goes on the top and what the colors are. And is the language direct? Is it not? But somehow the personification of things just kind of 
pushes that even more. When we think about, you know, the kind of emotional power of some of these kinds of tools, it is a, I mean, potentially it's a new form of computing that is much more engaging than other ways we have, you know, we've had even of interacting with our smartphones, which let's face it, are, you know, pretty much draw us in already. You think about the power and who's going to be able to learn about this and harness this. And I suppose I think about two things. I think, first of all, about Microsoft and research organizations like yours. I'm assuming you're learning a lot from things like Zoe. You know, they're, they're put out there as research projects. You know, they're, they're recreational for the rest of us. But you must be learning an awful lot about how people converse, building models of how language works. Chit-chat sounds such a simple thing, but you must be learning so much about that. So what are you actually learning and, and where will this kind of lead Microsoft, do you think? Probably one thing that we're learning is, gosh, what are really the things that we didn't know are hard problems that are actually hard problems? So, for example, we also build the bot framework. So we have about, you know, 100,000 developers. So that's like a platform that other other companies can build. Yeah, so we have a product that lets people build bots, and it's kind of the app model for building a bot, and it's all open source on um, GitHub and Node and C Sharp for developers. And then we also have a set of cognitive services. I think we have like 25 cognitive services that you can use and wrap. And a lot of people are using bots plus the cognitive services together. So for example, I might want a bot that can understand images that people upload or that can understand language and do speech or understand the world's knowledge through the Bing APIs. And so we've just been learning a ton from what companies want to do or large organizations want to do as well as, you know, developers who are just playing around or trying to do something with smaller organizations. And we're also learning a lot from Cortana and Showice and Zoe, um, these sort of characters, I guess, that we are building either for productivity to help you get your work done that know you, like Cortana, or that are more playful, like Showice. I think one of the things that we're learning is a lot of people, as they get a little bit further down the line, actually want to build something that they can use that's productive versus something that's very simple. And a lot of them kind of have a similar structure. So it kind of has a brain, it's probably overpromising, but it has a mechanism that is taking in text or voice that you're saying, and it's doing some understanding of what was said, and then kind of dispatching the conversation to a part. So for example, in if you talk to Cortana, she might go, oh, this is about a meeting. I'm going to send you to the meeting skill that knows deeper knowledge about scheduling meetings. Or if you want to go to a restaurant, it might know more about, you know, restaurants. Or, oh, this is chit-chat, you know, in show ice, so people are just talking. Or maybe this is a question and answer, it's a fact. Or maybe, hey, this is something that I don't know. I want to escalate to a human or just give you a search result. So we're starting to have these reusable parts that we think people are using to create these systems. And we want to, you know, we've been making those available as we develop them. We're just trying to understand how people, what common things are people doing that we could make easier for them so that everybody doesn't have to do all these pieces by themselves. And that that leads on to the, the other question I wonder about, which is, which other organizations will learn and how they will learn to use these things. So for most marketers now, this is potentially a really engaging new channel, a new way of kind of getting people involved. You know, to to really do it in an emotional way, are they going to have to learn entirely new skills? Because your technology templates are there that they can build on, but it's a new language for them, isn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, we can probably learn a lot from marketers, marketers right. actually, because they probably, you know, they really know their audience, you know, very specific audience and writers. I mean, when we started first doing Show Ice and Zoe, we actually brought in improv writers because we wanted to learn from rules of improv. Just like my first project, we wanted to learn from how do comic artists break things into frames and think about that. There's so many writers, and I think it's really cool to be able to think about writing dialogue and conversation and sort of mixing that with programming, but not really having to be a programmer to get started. So hopefully this isn't just for the uber geeks. Right. Because it people won't be as interesting. People will bring their own skills to this. And... We have to have people bring their own skills to it. I mean, I think everybody, like, who doesn't want to make their own, their own bot that's them? Right? That maybe it just could just be fun to be able to see what do I sound like? What does, you know, what does my best friend sound like? I don't know. Hopefully it's just not limited. Hopefully we make these tools, and this is really our goal, so that anybody, any kid, maybe it inspires them to code. They have some tools that they can use, and, you know, they help them converse with their friends, and then they. Yeah. They take that as inspiration to learn more. So that's interesting. So do you think we'll all end up with our own personal avatars, our own bots that represent us, speak for us? Maybe not everyone, but I think, you know, if we're successful, people will want things that can represent them versus, you know, just bots from five big companies that are kind of general purpose. I think you might want to be able to answer a question in your own voice and then if you feel like answering it or it doesn't answer properly, you know, it can interrupt you. I think there's lots of interactions that you could have where you could be helped by an assistant, but that assistant could either have your personality or the personality of, you know, some other more neutral thing or just, you know, doesn't have a personality at all and it's just in the software. Yeah, that's it's going to be a fascinating world when we start to offload more of those kind of not just our interactions with machines, but our interactions with people. Offload a bit more of that work to uh, you know, digital assistants that can do it for us. It's going to presumably email nightmare will be over. But uh, <laughs> yeah, Hopefully we don't well, create uh, this crazy cycle of more. But this is why we were so interested early on in bots actually working in groups. So already you see a lot of bots working well in teams. What's great about that is just like any group, usually there's somebody who organizes it and a bunch of people who participate, and then sometimes participation falls off. So I think it's really interesting to think not just how bots are talking to people one-on-one, but how is it actually helping groups of people interact more effectively? So there's going to be a whole range of experiences. Fascinating. Well, Lily Chang with Microsoft, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic when we hear from Mustafa Suleiman, co-founder of DeepMind, the AI company that conquered the ancient board game of Go and who is now working on finding solutions to energy and healthcare challenges. If you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Amy Keane.